Hello everyone, today I'm really excited and honored to have Leticia Marquez here today, who is the co-chief of the Capital Habeas Unit under, for the Federal Defenders in Tucson and is the branch manager for the Tucson office as well. We're here today to talk about her journey into the law, what inspired her to go to law school, and about her experiences that she has had being in, at the Federal Defenders. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, I'm really excited to be talking to you today about um, anything you want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was what inspired you to go to law school? I got my first glimpse of the courtroom, sort of, mm -hmm. in um, high school. We did a moot court. I think tons of kids get to do that in high school, and I had a lot of fun. And so that sort of was a little seed in mm -hmm. my head, and I thought, well, you know, that's something that people can do, and maybe I want to do that. But then when I got to the University of Arizona, that was a real culture shock, because I, I started uh, school in 1987, a long time ago. And at the time, it didn't people be familiar with this, but your freshman courses happen in auditoriums basically oh, like yeah. history 101 and stuff like that mm -hmm. and so it's 500 kids in there and my sister and I sort of started college at the same time and Aww. yeah so we lived together and all that but oh wow <laughs> anyway um the only way I could the way I could find her in one of these classrooms was a, she was the only other person with dark hair. Wow. And so it was really hard to find other Latinos in in the university. Mm -hmm. And we joined Mecha. I think your audience is familiar yeah. with Mecha. <laughs> and that was a godsend. So a group of us bonded and became politically active. And it's really funny because a lot of the people where they are now, um, one person is um, a, sort of a really high power uh, political I don't even know what you call them, but she moves and shakes move, yeah. in D.C. Mm -hmm. And another one's a, a doctor, and the other one is, you know, another politician. And so there's there's just a, a lot of good came out of our Mecha class. But mm -hmm. anyway, we started doing, it was the English-only initiative that was happening at the time in Arizona. And was that to make English the official language? Yeah. Yes. And so. so we campaigned for, and we walked for campaigns and stuff like that. So at that moment, I decided, I decided, you know, I have a lot to say, mm -hmm. but, you know, no one's going to listen to me unless I have something backing me, a degree of some sort saying that, mm -hmm. you know, I know what I'm talking about or, or something, you know, that mm -hmm. was my idea. Mm -hmm. It was, um, because I saw how especially college students were dismissed when it came to speaking your mind and um, protesting and being active. And so I felt like I needed, I needed higher education. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I didn't know. I mean, I wasn't really thinking politics. I just felt like I needed more. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I applied to several several law schools. I applied to 13 law schools. Oh, wow. No, 14 law schools, I'm sorry. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, it wasn't an easy road. A lot of people uh, probably with my background would understand, but we weren't, we were not, we were, did not have resources. And so 
we had to uh, work full time and go to school wow. and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. anyway, the counselors were not that. I'm sorry if I'm babbling, but no, no, no. Um, counselors weren't that helpful. In fact, I went to a pre-law counselor, and this was at U of A. At U of A, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and she said to me, oh, "What's your what's your backup plan if you don't get into law school?" And I said, "I don't have a backup plan." <laughs> yeah. And she's like, "You need a backup plan because." Mm-hmm chances are you're not going to get into law school Mm. and so I got into 13 out of the 14 law schools that I applied to yeah and so I settled on the University of Arizona yeah went there and sort of that's sort of how I wound up there do you feel like your law degree has given you the kind of credibility that you thought it would when you were a Mitch activist yeah I mean I think it does I think a lot of lawyers I find are unhappy being lawyers and <laughs> yeah that that's the trend and try to discourage There's articles about it <laughs> people from going into law school I, I would never discourage it because I think it's a good degree it it you know it's a doctorates um, I've known people who have gone and taught at univer- music at universities mm-hmm. you know with their law, with their law degree you could basically I don't understand how people get stuck in an unhappy uh, career when there's so many options yeah. that you can have with a law degree. Did you feel happy with the counseling that you received in law school? Because I think some people feel like they're just not exposed to a lot of options, like it's kind of big law or something else. I can comment of what it was like. Mind you, I've been out 26 years, graduated in 95, so 25 years. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't, they weren't helpful at the law school I mean I think they steered minorities into public interest and and Hmm. unless you had a 4.0 you know they okay like they weren't being groomed for clerkships no yeah not at all yeah not at all I mean I think I think that career services was very and I and I think they have a motivation because they want certain stats and they want to place people in certain places and they're really not going to go out of their way if they don't think that you have a really good shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think I interviewed with one firm once, um, but that was not really my thing mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. I, I learned early on in law school, well, I got the death penalty bug, was just what I call it, after my first year. So that's the summer of my first year. What made you become interested in that? So I was looking for a job for the summer after the first year of law school, and there was there was an announcement for a teaching or for a write, teaching assistant, a writing assistant mm-hmm. for this program called Clio, and um, I forget what the acronym stands for, but I participated in Clio uh, as an incoming law student, and what it is, it was through the Department of Education, and I think the funding has changed now, mm-hmm. but basically it gives un- under. Uh, underserved minority students a head start in law school and so you do you go to a certain like you go for six weeks I think it is and you live in dorms and stuff and you take law school classes oh nice and so uh, they teach you how to brief how Mm -hmm. to read a case Mm -hmm. um, how to take an exam and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and so that when you get to law school you're not like completely freaked out by the terminology and you already know how to read a case mm-hmm. and brief it and stuff like that. And so I participated in it as a, as a student 
and then I applied to be a writing assistant and at that during I was assigned to a woman who who was a death penalty attorney and during the summer she did the program and so that's how I got exposed to that and she was happy with my work Mm -hmm. and offered me project clerking during the summer or during the school year of my second year and Mm -hmm. so then I continued to work for her throughout law school and then she offered me a job when I got out and as an associate and so I worked with her for about five years doing capital appeals in um in state court mostly and I did a little bit of federal habeas and then eventually moved um, to the federal defenders capital habeas options does a person who's facing the death penalty or who has already been convicted and is on death row what legal options do they have so there is a round of state appeals and when those are done then there's a federal appeal Mm -hmm. and so after the trial is what is called a direct appeal and that just goes directly up to the state Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use Arizona as an example. Mm-hmm. So after trial, you go to the Arizona Supreme Court, and it's you know a regular appeal. You have briefs that are filed, an oral argument, and then opinion is rendered. After that, you go back to state court in what's called post-conviction. Mm-hmm. And it's in front of the same judge that... That originally the, sentenced That you? originally did the trial. Um, in the in the direct appeal, you basically are limited to the four corners of pleadings and transcripts. So anything that isn't on the record that wasn't preserved or whatever is not available. Mm-hmm. On post conviction is the is is ideally the opportunity to open up the record and bring in new evidence, new claims. Mm-hmm. This is where your ineffective assistance of counsel claims come in. Mm-hmm. Where uh, where um, DNA and innocence and newly discovered evidence comes comes in, mm-hmm. and it's arguably the most important part of the whole appeal because everything should be in there. You you really have to get investigate and get funding, or should ideally get funding for experts and investigators and all that stuff. And so after that appeal is done, then you you have or post conviction is done and you present it to the same judge, which I always thought was strange because it's, yeah. you know, it's not like that person's going to hardly ever reverse him or herself. Yeah. They have to admit that they made a prior mistake. Yeah. Or something, you know, that yeah. something went wrong. Yeah. And so then that, that post-conviction is directly appealed to the Arizona Supreme Court. So you go up twice. Okay. And in, in that case, it's basically the Supreme Court either takes jurisdiction of it and decides it or just decides not to decide it. And in most of the cases, they just decide not to decide anything on it. So after you're done with that, that's when you go into federal court. Okay. And then you have a whole nother set of appeals that you can make? So it's one appeal okay. in federal court. And the law changed in... 1996 with the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And before that, you used to be able to go into federal court on multiple 
multiple times oh, on different wow. habeas appeals. Mm-hmm. And after after the law that law changed, it became um, very strict, and there it placed a lot of procedural hurdles. So if a claim was not raised in state court, either on direct appeal or post-conviction, and taken to the Arizona Supreme Court or the state Supreme Court mm-hmm. properly, mm-hmm. so it has to be federalized and it has to be taken to the highest state court, then it is not, then it's procedurally defaulted and not available for federal review. And there are just so many times that claims are not properly preserved, properly raised, not raised at all, not federalized, not investigated when in this process. Um, tons of stuff gets lost. Yeah. I have a question about the appeals that this in, within the state system. Why is it that you can't present new evidence prior to conviction when you're appealing to the Supreme Court the first time? So you used to be able to, in, back in like the 80s and 90s, people were staying the direct appeal and going back and doing a post-conviction and then um, combining them and raising them all together. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things happen. One, you cut out one, uh, you know, one bite of the apple. Two, it, people have learned that immediately after convictions is not the time to go and ask people to change their mind. Mm-hmm. You need a little bit of time for for tempers to settle and people to sort of live with things and then maybe then take another run at people. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because these cases are about death and usually like very grisly murders that you think that there there is a benefit to that wait time? Is it like the emotions that I are think there's a settling? Benefit, yes, I think there is a benefit to some wait time, but not a lot of wait time. Yeah. Like you, yeah. <laughs> you shouldn't probably wait 20 years to go find somebody because then memories fade and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I think giving people the benefit of of yeah, of let's say jurors, even though jurors is kind of a, um, it's it's a little bit controversial whether people should be going and talking to jurors and asking them about the decisions that they made. But let's say jurors, mm-hmm. you know, there are jurors that we've talked to that have said to us, "I've been waiting for you to knock on my door." Oh wow! So I could tell you everything, all the bad things that happened in the jury room. Wow! And then there are jurors that that would say to us, you know, had you talked to me, or people that did talk immediately after the conviction that would now say something different after they've lived with it for a while. My is a little rusty, but this is happening because jurors can't speak to internal deliberations, but they can report, like, outside influences coming in. Correct. So when they're knocking, when they're saying, I was waiting for you to knock on my door, they wanted to tell you about internal deliberations that maybe they couldn't at the time? Yeah. Okay. And, 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 there's a lot of limitations on what juror claims you can raise. Yeah. You can't undermine, like you can't challenge their deliberations. But if there was something improper that happened, if somebody, you know, was reading from the Bible or, you know, the paper or had mm-hmm. some other outside knowledge, then those are things that you can raise. But there's some states, including Arizona, that, that limit what you can, limit your access to jurors. And so how do you find out? this other 
would you say is, or what drew you to be the co-chief of the habeas unit specifically? Like you could have done a lot of defense work, so what made you want to do that specifically? Well, one, once you, I think, once you get the death bug, you either run away from it or you like embrace it. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard to uh, fight over, you know, a DUI once you start working on life or death issues. And the the co-chief basically just kind of grew organically. There was a one chief for the capital habeas unit and our capital habeas unit is split between Tucson and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was working, but I think we grew and also he he and I would talk a lot on that level, like on a more supervisor level, he would come to me and rely on me for, for stuff and as a sounding board. And so it just, it just you know, it just kind of was natural to, to have another person because we don't only have attorneys, but we have investigators, paralegals. You know, it's a big team. So it's it's a huge team, and so there was definitely need for a, a co-chief, and I think um, you know he and I work well together, and you know I've been doing this for a long time, as mm-hmm. as has he. Mm-hmm. the victim statement serve both positive and negative? Well, de- definitely um, victims are, are are a part, well, they're not technically a party, but are, are definitely people that we respect and feel for and cannot lose sight of mm-hmm. in this in, entire process. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes defense attorneys get a bad rap when we represent capital defendants because they think that we don't care at all about the defendants but mm-hmm. um, or about the victims about the I'm sorry about the victims but they 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 I can t- tell you that they are always in the front of our minds and mm-hmm. we try to be as respectful as possible while at the same time trying to advocate for our client mm-hmm. now I know that the uh, there have been occasions that and we we're connected across the country where we see sort of a dueling Roles that are um, that victims take on. Mm-hmm. There's there are victims that are anti-death penalty, and they have been vocal about how once they like express family members of victims. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. once they express that that they are cast aside by by the state agencies. Right. And so there are lots of, I mean, you could Google that and come up with many, many stories about that. Mm-hmm. And then in our case, we see how the um, prosecutors, um, you know, sort of put the victims out in, in front of the public. And, you know, I, I just feel like it's really obvious that Victims who are anti-death penalty do not get the same consideration from state agencies that victims who are very pro-death penalty. Mm-hmm. There is a desperate treatment of those victims that I've, I have seen throughout the years and I have heard stories of nationally. Mm. That's interesting. Facing the death penalty, 
it's controversial, <laughs> as I'm sure you know. And so oftentimes on this podcast, I've talked about alternative means of accountability that don't require incarceration or, or execution in this specific case. And frequently the response that I get when I'm talking about decarceration is, well, what about the murderers? And there's this hesitation that people have of respecting the rights of a person who has been accused of murder. So what, how, how do you do it? And what's your philosophy behind it? Like, why do you think that everybody deserves a good attorney? Well, it's, you know, the, the, if it were, what I, what I often say to people, if, if it were you, if it were your relative, you would want an attorney who would fight hard for you or your family member and, mm-hmm. and um, you'd want the best representation and so I start from there but also Brian Stevenson has said this um, so I won't take credit for the quote but you know you and I think Sister Helen Prejean has said it too mm-hmm. you know you're not you are not the the worst act you've committed mm-hmm. and I think people would want to dehumanize people who are executed who are been sentenced to death because that's sort of the crux of it. Mm-hmm. If the society has determined that they're disposable, right? And so you almost have to consider them something other than human. But yeah, over the years I've been doing this for since law school, um, and I've gotten to know many, uh, many a condemned person, and there are times that you forget the setting. And they're, they can be very normal, I guess, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, we are the first people who has ever shown them any type of kindness or humanity. Our clients come from very difficult backgrounds mm-hmm. of abuse and mental illness and uh, addiction. Um, horrific. Sometimes... You know, definitely the the murders are bad, obviously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but sometimes their their backgrounds can be just as bad, mm-hmm. and it's it's hard not to show some compassion to people who have suffered so much yeah. in their lives. Well, I think that's a perspective not everyone has, so I'm glad that you're sharing it. emotionally cope with losing a case because when you lose a case there there's a life at stake like like you were saying it's different than other legal cases that are fought so how do you how do you deal with that and also you have been able to take care of yourself for the past two, 20 years that you've been practicing and so how how do you do that when there is so much emotional burnout from public interest attorneys from defense attorneys so the, the first time I lost a client was very early on in my career. I was 99, so I had only been a lawyer for like four years. And, and it, it, you know, it was very difficult. And I remember my brother-in-law saying, it shouldn't be this, it shouldn't be this painful to lose a case. Yeah. And so, but, it, but it's true, you lose a case, you lose a client. Mm-hmm. And 
And since then, I've dealt with the executions by, one, you lean on your, on your, on your community of, of fellow capital practitioners, including your staff and your office, because really they're the only other ones that know what you're going through. And, and then I happen to have a, a supportive family in that a, a few of them are lawyers and, and know, know the, the gravity of, what I, of my work. And my parents and other family, just since being around me, have gotten used to me not being around for events. <laughs> and they give me passes which is very kind of them to do. And so they don't ever put a lot of pressure on me to put, to not put work first at times mm-hmm. because there are times that I am working weekends and holidays and I miss things. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that they're not breathing down my throat or giving me extra pressure is helpful. Mm-hmm. And I have thanked them for that uh, privately and publicly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think as, other than that, I'm... I have faith. I have a uh, a deep faith. Not necessarily an organized church, but mm-hmm. I f- feel um, that spiritually I'm doing the right thing by representing um, condemned people. And um, at the end of the day, I I I think that gives me a lot of comfort when I lose a client. And I like to spend a lot of time alone, which probably <laughs> should be the opposite. But peace and quiet and being alone really helps me sort of recharge and, and be back among the chaos. Mm. Well, I really admire what you do because 20 years of capital habeas work is really intense. 25. 25. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, more if you can while now is working in in law school on this stuff. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So what advice would you have for younger Latinas who want to go to law school? So first I would say do it. There, it's a, it's a wonderful degree. Don't get wrapped up in law school law school itself is awful it's really bad the, <laughs> I've talked about that a lot so the, they know okay so <laughs> you know the environment is everybody regresses to high school it's bizarro yeah. and uh, and so just remember it's three years and you know and so don't get wrapped up in all the drama but I, I think writing as far as practical advice mm-hmm. you know writing getting your writing as 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 good as you can, mm-hmm. um, work on that, and um, and find mentors because I learned to practice from my mentors. Law school doesn't teach you how to practice or how to be a lawyer. Um, I found kind and generous mentors who were ethical. That's another thing, mm-hmm. um, and so I latched onto them. But yeah, and and stay grounded with your outside of law school community so those are those other pieces of advice I would give a Latina and lean into it and fight your way to the front because it's it's too easy for 
Latinas to fade into the background and take the opportunity, make the opportunity. I actually give speak to minority lawyers who are just starting out and mm-hmm. give them advice on their career. And all the jobs that I have had have been creative for me. I never really applied for a job. And so the way I did it is I... You might just be very talented. <laughs> I don't just know about that. <laughs> but I think it's the work ethic that you get from your parents to work hard, first mm-hmm. of all. And then whenever I saw um, a need or a gap, I just did it. And, and I think that a lot of us do that. A lot of people just sit back and wait for somebody else to do it. But I just did it. And so what I tell young minority professionals is work your butt off, make yourself indispensable, mm-hmm. because then all of a sudden people are going to realize, oh, I can't live without that person. Mm-hmm. That person makes my life so easy. Mm-hmm. You know, I need them here always. And so that's what I unconsciously did when I look back yeah. at my career is, you know, I, I didn't have to act as a supervisor for the capital habeas unit but I did I mm-hmm. went out of my way it was a pain in the ass sometimes but I filled in gaps and, um, and that's just one example of, of what I would tell young professionals to do in whatever setting yeah I agree you do have to put yourself out there and it is uncomfortable but it's just what you have to do just like you said to find to create a place for yourself where you're really needed on the team yeah definitely Okay, so we've been speaking for like 45 minutes. It's kind of around how long an episode is. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask about. I don't think so. I mean, the only other thing I would, I would advise Latinas is, is to keep your Spanish. Keep up your Spanish. Oh my God, and, yes. We and, need more Spanish-speaking attorneys. And if you lost it along the way, you better go find it. <laughs> because... Spanish is a key, and um, and when I speak to high school students, I tell them that. Like, for example, my office, we have, I don't know how many people here in the Tucson branch. We don't hire one person from the secretary to the attorneys who do not speak Spanish. I love that, because not every legal workplace does that, even if they are working with Spanish-speaking clients a lot. So that's so important. Yeah, we test our, our attorneys. Yeah. We test everybody, yeah. actually, with us pretty rigorous Spanish test Mm -hmm. and so there are there are I don't know what's the PC word Caucasians (laughs) Anglo-Saxons I was watching Telemundo the other day and they were calling them Anglo-Saxonists so then I'm like (laughs) that's really funny so there are there are white people Mm -hmm. who are learning Spanish learning it well Mm -hmm. and taking the one of our many special skills mm-hmm. that we should sort of make sure that we maintain. Yeah. So that's one of my soapbox issues. Yeah. And I know that, like, I always say, you know, I know that at various times in the U.S., kids were in school discouraged from speaking Spanish, and I know that that stigma has been passed down, and that's why some people don't learn Spanish. No shame, but I I do think that if you want to enter the legal profession, you do want to be a public interest lawyer especially, you should definitely learn Spanish just as a responsibility to your client. Well, and then also not just definitely that, because communication is is the key to representing a client, and communication and rapport and trust. Mm -hmm. But 
but also even if you go into a different profession I have a friend who's Caucasian (laughs) and her son is now a doctor Mm -hmm. but one of the reasons he got into medical school is because he was fluent in Spanish Mm. and that was a huge plus because Medical schools want doctors who speak Spanish. Yeah. Um, so it's across the board in, in professions, um, the need for Spanish-speaking yeah. professionals. I, you know, there's like there's been a, for a really long time this discourse in the U.S. about, like we we're, were talking about earlier, the 1987 English-only mm-hmm. movement that's happened various times in U.S. history. And I think it's important in 2019 for us to realize that we do live in a global society and to just accept that there are Spanish monolingual speakers who live in the United States and who need to receive healthcare, who need to receive legal services, who need to be a part of civic society. And it should be more normalized and integrated into our educational curriculums that we learn a, a second language like they do in Europe all the time. <laughs> and so the United States is one of the, maybe the only country yeah. that is so focused on having one language. I mean, in Europe, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've met Europeans who speak three, four languages. Yeah. And it's, it's ridiculous that Americans are just so English focused. Yeah, bilingual education was uh, was like my thing when I was an undergrad, and so I also studied about how you children receive cognitive benefits from being bilingual at a young age. I know that there's this idea in like parenting circles that if you introduce your kid to two languages, they'll get confused or like they won't learn either of them as well as they would have if they learned one at a time. And actually, um, studies have shown the opposite, that you your brain has more malleability in being able to decipher, which makes sense, being able to decipher between two languages. So well, there's only, a lot of benefits. Not only that, but not only can they decipher it, but it, it also improves cognitive function. Mm-hmm. And, the, and this is just the little bit I know from working with experts is that you're just forming more and more connections in the brain. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's helpful. That's why they tell people who get older to start, you know, learning a new language oh, wow. and make sure that they that they continue to form those connections. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think we're on the same page yes. with that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So it was really great speaking with you, and I hope you can be on the podcast again soon. Absolutely. Thank <laughs> you for inviting me. Bye. Bye.